Well, good to see all of you this morning, as well as hear all of you this morning. Uh, we're in the, our study of the patriarchs. We're in the 35th chapter of Genesis. We got near the end of the chapter, but we didn't quite finish it. Maybe just to review verses 9 through 15, uh, there, after all that's happened, and I'm not going to go back through everything that's happened, but particularly in the immediate context after all that was happened, as they went through the ritual purification, they got rid of all the idols and so on, God then renews the covenant with Jacob, and he mentions those three covenant elements that we've talked about throughout the discussions of the Abrahamic covenant. That's very important, that this, this constant reminder that Jacob is the covenant son, and you always see the Old Testament speak of the covenant of, with God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is that uh, re, uh, renewal of the covenant with, uh, with Jacob. Now, what, what ends chapter 35 is the death of Rachel, his wife, and the death of Isaac, his father. Then they journeyed from Bethel. Remember, we talked about that on the map. You see that. When they were still some distance from Ephrah, that is Bethlehem. The original name of Bethlehem was Ephrathah, Ephrah, so they're near Bethlehem. Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor, the text says. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai. Back in chapter 30, verse 24, Rachel had prayed for another child, and so God is now answering that prayer in quite a gracious way. However, she's a bit older, and the specifics aren't detailed at all in Scripture. It's a hard labor. It was a difficult birth, and it took her life. Jacob names this boy Benjamin, and the name Benjamin um, is is of course, the last of the 12 children of Jacob. It means son of my right hand. So Rachel died, verse 19, and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And so, again, Ephrathath is the earlier name of Bethlehem. Beit Lahem. Beit Lahem is house of bread. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to this day. Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the, rear, beyond the tower of Adar. Notice there he is called Israel, not Jacob. I want to make one comment here. I wish we could all get on a plane right now, and I take you to Jerusalem, and we drive about four miles to the south, and we'd enter the in Palestinian territories as a result of the Oslo Accords in 1991, Bethlehem was transferred to the Palestinians, now under their control, so we got to go through a checkpoint, and they will get on the bus with their rifles and the machine guns, and you'll have to show them all your passports, which is a very non-threatening thing to happen, although that's not true for some of the people, but it is a non-threatening thing. It's just a formality, and as we then go through the checkpoint and enter the gate, we turn a little corner, and right to the right is Rachel's tomb. And there's a little church there, and honestly, it's not a very large church, but there's a little church built over her tomb. And it's 
probably the right place where, where Jacob buried her. It is interesting though, she is buried in Bethlehem. She's not buried in Hebron where all the other fathers and their wives, my father, I mean patriarchs are buried. And it and it is because that's a pretty long distance to go from Bethlehem down to Hebron. So he buries her in Bethlehem, which is uh, an, an interesting fact. There, I don't think there's any reason for that. She certainly hadn't fallen out of favor or anything like that. But it is interesting that she is buried in Beth in Bethlehem, not in Hebron, the caves of Machpelah, which is where Isaac will be buried. Jim, does the uh, preservation of the body help determine where the the uh, burial is, or that matter whatsoever. Uh, the when you say the preservation of the body, um, deterioration before. Yeah. Because I don't think they believed in bombing. No, they did not, and that's an Egyptian practice. And Joseph, which will. And Jacob, Jacob, when Jacob dies, that's this is the end of the book of, of, of Genesis. Jacob's body will be embalmed, and we'll see that. But as none of these other leaders or patriarchs are, 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 are embalmed. That's an Egyptian practice. But Jacob was an Egyptian that happened. That's right, and that's why he would be embalmed. And we'll see that at the end of our study of the book of Genesis, these patriarchal studies. Let me make one comment here because it is important. Um, Typically, what and, and and this is apparently what happened here. They would, and that's why Abraham had purchased the cave of Machpelah. They would bury, and this is a a long traditional practice among the Jewish people at that time. They would place the the body, wrap it, and put spices and so on, and and lay it in the cave. A little later, it would actually be hewn out. It would be pretty pretty well structured with ledges and everything, but they lay the body in the cave. So about a year after the body would have been buried and it would have deteriorated, as I don't need to explain that, then the family would go in, retrieve the body and wash the bones. And then they'd take the bones and then place them in a box about this size and it's called an ossuary. But that's where they would then have the family preserved because <laughs> these boxes just when it's just your bones you can put a lot of bones in those ossuaries so i mean that's why you will see uh in israel's history when they bury they do their best to bury in a cave now today of course we can do it in israel you can do it in in a, in a modern way where there are concrete slabs and all the things that they can do to preserve the body they don't do that washing of the bones in a major way among uh, anyone except some real Orthodox Jews. That was the practice. And we have found some really interesting ossuaries. They found the ossuary of Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas? He was the high priest at the time of Jesus. They found his ossuary. His name's on the It's really, it's just in really neat stuff. When we would visit Bethlehem, then we'll go back to the Mount of Olives and I'll show you along the side as we're walking down the mount. Well, I'll show you some of these ossuaries. They're really neat to see. Is that still a Jewish practice today in Israel or in America? Not, you mean what I just described yeah, that the, the, for the most part, no, <clears throat> no. 
It really, it really is not because of, I mean, for hygiene purposes, for legal purposes, it's kind of a very unusual thing. In the Middle East, though, that's still practiced among some. Verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, notice again, Moses is using his covenant name. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, who's Bilhah? Well, she, remember, <laughs> you kind of got to go back quite a few chapters, but you go back to the to the previous uh, history. Remember when Jacob had thought he was going to be able to marry Rachel, he ended up with Leah. Remember all of that? Bilhah was the servant or, uh, that was attached to Rachel. So what I'm trying to get you to understand is here, what, what Reuben did was atrocious. Reuben is the firstborn son of, um, of Jacob. His mother was Leah. Reuben is the firstborn son. And what did Reuben do? He slept with one of the four wives of Jacob. Bilhah, who was the servant of Rachel. I'm not, I hope I'm not confusing you. Do you sort of remember all those relationships? <laughs> so, I mean, this is, it's really, it's an atrocious thing that he did, but it's one sentence. But when we get to the end of the book, when Jacob goes through and blesses or, or even talks about each one of his 12 sons, he will say to Reuben, I'll paraphrase it, you slept with one of my wives, you lose all the rights of the firstborn. And he takes that blessing of the firstborn and gives it to Joseph. And Joseph's two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, receive the largest land grants in the land. Are you following me? So this one sentence that just happened here has profound implications for Reuben and for what will be the children of Joseph. Because Joseph, this is what Jacob does, Joseph will receive the blessings of the firstborn, and his two sons share that. They get the largest land grants in the land. And so, and it's really, it's very fascinating. The text tells us in one sentence. It's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But don't, anything that's in the scriptures, it's there for a reason. And it's telling us something that's quite profound because the implications of it are enormous for Reuben and specifically for Joseph. I mean, we're decades from that, but it's just very significant. And Israel heard of it. And what does it say? He did nothing. As far as we can determine at this point in time, he didn't do anything. He will do something later on. Were all the women complicit with this kind of thing, where a guy would come in? I mean, I mean, do you know that? I mean, well, she's a servant, even though her relationship changed. She's a servant of Rachel, right? So you would <laughs> today. You would probably say that this was rape. Okay. Because uh, the text, I mean, this is what is so frustrating when, uh, here in this case, it's Moses who's writing, when the Bible just tells us something like this in one sentence, and we have like 47 questions about this one sentence. 
and you just said, wait a minute, <laughs> stop there. I want you to tell me more, but the text doesn't. The Bible chooses not to tell us, but it would be, um, it would be assumed for us as we read it that this wasn't a cooperative consensual thing, but we just don't know that. I can't say that for certain because the text is just utterly silent about everything except one thing. He laid with his mother's wife, his father's wife, wife, one of his wives. And then all, I'm not going to go through all of this, but the next couple of verses, 23, 24, down through 26, just itemize the children of Jacob. And I, we don't need to do that, but it's just, we've seen them all born. We talked about that in an earlier chapter. And Jacob came to his father in verse 27, Father Isaac at Mamre, at Kiriath Arba, that's his Hebron. So now he goes down to Hebron, which is south quite a bit. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We'll learn later on in chapter 49 of the book of Genesis that Isaac is buried in the caves of Machpelah in Hebron. Now, you've got to go way back in, in our study of the patriarchs, early in the life of Abraham, when he gets in, he buys this piece of land. And this is where he's going to bury Sarah, and in the caves of Machpelah. You can go, you can go to Hebron today. It's kind of a difficult area to be in, actually. But you can go to Hebron. They built an enormous church over the caves of Machpelah. I mean, it's an enormous church. It's called the the uh, uh, the church at Hebron. It's, it's called the the, the uh, Church of Patriarchs is the title of it. And all of them were buried there except uh, Rachel as we already talked. It's a difficult church to be in because there are, um, it's Palestine, Hebron was another one of those cities that was given to the Palestinians in the Oslo Accords in 1991. And the last time I was there with a tour group in the bus, Palestinian children were throwing stones at the bus. And my guide said, we'd probably better leave. And, and I affirmed that, and everybody in the bus said, yes, let's go. <laughs> but it's, it is, it's, it's hard for people. I mean, those kids, nothing would have happened, I don't think. But it is unsettling to be in your bus and have children throwing stones at your bus. I mean, that's an unsettled thing. So they're taught from an early age. Oh, my goodness, yes, yes. And Hebron, uh, you know, I don't know how much you follow news. So windy. Hebron, when there's unrest in Israel, almost always there's a lot of unrest in Hebron because it's a heavily Palestinian. As a matter of fact, by far uh, the majority, I don't, I forget the percentage, but the, by far the vast majority of people who live in Hebron are Palestinians, are Arabs in other words. And the Jewish population in Hebron is quite small and they live in very fortified areas. Now again, I'm telling you more than you perhaps are interested in knowing, but it's interesting, you'll notice in verse 28, that he's, he was 180 years old. So like his father, Abraham, Isaac lives a full life. As we've talked before, and you already know this, the Bible doesn't have a lot to tell us about Isaac. There are two chapters on Isaac, and they all revolve around what Esau and Jacob are doing. So, I mean, we just know his whole 180 years, we know a little bit about his early life. We know what happens to him on Mount Moriah when Abraham offers him back to God and so on. 
But other than that, we know a lot about Abraham, know a lot about Jacob, know a lot about Joseph, but we really don't know a lot about Isaac. It doesn't mean anything other than the consequential things in the history of the covenant nation are not occurring in Isaac's lifetime, or in Abraham and Jacob's lifetime. Dr. Ecke? Question. Yes. Um, in verse 25, it talks about the son of Billos, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. Is there any possibility those they were fathered by Reuben? Or I I don't think so, but I'm not absolutely positive. What's the question? His question um, was uh, a little later. Children listed were some of those children to. Um, Bilha to, uh, in other words, fathered by Ray, uh, fathered by Reuben. Isn't that your question, Jim? Yes, it was. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't believe so. It would, I don't believe so. I mean, it would seem unusual if that were the case, because all of these are, all these others were fathered. Yes, yes, I did. I mean, this this takes us back to uh, verse twenty-five is the one I think you're referring to. They, they, it's detailed in an earlier chapter. These are children that were born through Jacob in his sexual intercourse with Bilhah, who had been given to him by Rachel. Now, chapter 36, we're not, I'm not going to read all of that if you've taken a moment to look at it. It's, it's the genealogy of Esau. And if I start reading this by 20 after, you will all be asleep. It's extremely. Now, I'm not going to ignore it. But what I'm interested in making a couple of observations in verses 1 through 8, then we'll, we'll not go, because the rest of the chapters are just all of the names of all the descendants of Esau. But notice the first eight verses of chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, and then in parenthesis, or I think all of your translation by parenthesis, that is Edom. Now remember, geographically, Edom is south of the Dead Sea, okay? And Esau means red, Edom means red. So all Moses is doing is reminding us of something. As Jacob Israel is the covenant father now of the children of Israel. Esau is the father also of a nation, and that nation will be known as Edom. Esau and Edom both mean red. And again, on our trip then, after we're done seeing Jerusalem and Bethlehem and all that, We'll travel south along the main road that goes north-south to the Dead Sea. And you'll get out of the bus, get into your hotel. Then you'll go into your swimming trunk, and you'll go down and float in the Dead Sea. And when you come out of the Dead Sea, I'm going to ask you, stand and face south. And it'll, the sun will be out. The sun shines 322 days out of the year in Israel. You'll look south, and you'll see the mountains of Edom. What color do you think they're going to be? They're red. It's amazing to see that. And it just, it reminds you that's Edom, which means red. 
And so it's that it, it, all the Bible's doing here is reminding us that Esau, as Jacob is Israel, Esau is the founder of a nation as well. But notice verse 2, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. And so, and again, I'm not going to read all these names. Some are very difficult names. But it lists, it lists these wives, and they're all Canaanites. Now, you have to go back quite a few chapters, but if you can remember after Esau and Jacob had, had all the controversy and Jacob stole everything from him and all of that, after that had occurred, it says, and Esau took his wife, a Canaanite. And then the very next verse is Rebekah and Isaac came unglued about this. They were extremely upset that their son married a Canaanite. It's another one of the reasons why they wanted Jacob to go way up north to the family so that he could marry someone in the family. Okay, now that's, that's all that's in. Now look at the next passage, then we'll, we'll, we'll go to chapter 37. Then Esau, verse 6, Then Esau took his wives, his sons and his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourners could not support them because of their livestock. So he settled in the hill country of Seir. S-E-I-R. Seir is the early name for the region that becomes known as Edom. And that's why the parenthesis says Esau is Edom. So all that text is doing, and it goes on for quite a few verses, actually, but all it does is establish the important premise that Esau is the founder of a nation as well. But it's a nation that is the descendant of Jacob, not the covenant son, and Canaanites. It's the intermarriage of those two. And so, because Edom is Esau, and Esau and Edom mean red, it gives you the idea this is going to cause some problems. Do the Edomites cause problems for Israel? Massive problem. Massive problem. Because once Israel is freed from 420 years of slavery in Egypt, and they receive their law at Mount Sinai and so on. They start to make their way up, and they go through those 40 years of, of wandering. They go up, and they want to go through Edom, the country of Edom. And it would be much easier, kind of a straight line, to get to the east side of the sea of, 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 of Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. What did the Edomites say? No. You can't come through our land. Now, let's fast forward a little more. You get to 586 B.C., I'm really fast-forwarding, and Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem and takes the Jews into captivity, the 70-year captivity. Guess what? The Edomites move into Judah and take the entire southern half of Judah, and it's called Idumea, which is the Hebrew wordplay on Edom. And Idumea, and one more point, who is the most famous Idumean in history? King Herod the Great, who is the king when Jesus is born. So the Edomites keep showing up 
in really critical periods of Israel's history. And at no point are the Edomites ever depicted in a positive way. They are the nemesis of Israel. And then, this is really interesting, then later, much later in history, they seemingly just disappear. And all that means is they just intermarry and as a separate entity south of the Dead Sea and so on, they just disappear from history. They're no longer an, ident an identifiable uh, nation. All right. I'm inserting a lot of history there, but that I hope that's how I, I, I love to do that. And because I love to do it, I want you to love to do it. So I hope what I love you now love. Okay? We're now ready to start Joseph. Joseph is, of all the leaders, a very, very early, Joseph gets the most press. Joseph has most chapters of the Bible devoted to him, from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. It's an interesting reason. Why does the Bible give so much, and specifically here, uh, Genesis, why does the book of Genesis gives so much emphasis to Joseph. His character, there's not one thing said that is in any way negative or evil about Joseph. Joseph also explains how and why Jacob and his clan moved down to Egypt. It explains that. Because if Joseph did not become the second most powerful ruler, second most powerful person in ancient Egypt, it's very, very doubtful that Jacob and his clan would ever have moved down to Egypt during the massive famine that occurred in Canaan. And thirdly, it helps now? establish a very, very important connecting point that's going to lead to the coming of the Messiah approximately 1,700 years later. So Joseph is really important. But I like to study it, the, these chapters, because of the character of Joseph. Joseph is a model of how we should deal with adversity. Joseph is a model of how we should deal with temptation. Joseph is a model of someone who really trusted God. So I'm hoping that this will be a blessing to you guys. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible to study. You mentioned dealing with adversity. What are some of the characteristics as you know these scriptures uh, and you know him that he exhibited during his lifetime? Well, I mean, first and foremost is his trust and faith in God. You know, he really believed what God had promised. Secondly, his, his loyalty to God would not allow him to fall into the temptation of the moment. We will see Potiphar's wife, I'll have to explain who he is and all that, but Potiphar's wife really likes Joseph. He was handsome, he was young, he was gifted, and she wants to seduce him. If you don't know what that means, she wants to have sex with him, in case you didn't know what seduction meant. But anyway, and he just keeps the text day after day after day. Now, how many men could stand, stand up? How many men 
Do you know, including yourself, if a beautiful woman who was a physician and no one else would have crossed her and she wants to have sex with you, how many women would give in to that? And I, I'm not indicting her, I'm just saying that is an incredible temptation. And Joseph says, my loyalty is to God and I will not do anything that displeases my God. And how did he get that, Jim? What was the foundation where he was? We're gonna learn some of that as we get started okay. here. And I think the third thing is that he really illustrates, similar to Daniel, illustrates how do I function in a world that is totally opposed to God and everything he stands for. Think of Daniel. He's in the Babylonian kingdom. He's in the Persian kingdom. Here's Joseph. He's in the Egyptian kingdom. And the Egyptians are not Jews. The Egyptians don't worship Yahweh at all. Not even close to it. And yet Joseph could function in that world and still stay loyal to God. He is a great model of what a salt and light believer looks like. Hey, Jim? Yes. Um, the, the other thing that I've noticed in, about him is that he, like Boaz, he's an able administrator. It's one of the... Uh, one of the things that seems to be common, a common thread in heroes of the Bible from end to end is that they are competent and able administrators through the things that you've mentioned before, through their trust in God, through their holding to a standard, through their loyalty. You and I, Russ, that's a very good comment because that, that is that added characteristic of him. He was a gifted minister. He was a leader. He had read all John Maxwell's books. He listened to all his tapes. <laughs> he had attended five or six of his conferences. And you can just see that in the way he administered things. Of course, don't any of you take that seriously. I was only kidding. <laughs> I don't know who he is. But and, no, you're, really, you're really right there, Russ. And he, had, he, he, he was such a capable administrator. But he also, because you can't be that if you don't also are able to cultivate trust among people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. As if, if it's lonely at the top, Maxwell always says, don't believe that. <laughs> it shouldn't be lonely at the top. You should have lots and lots of people around you who are your counselors and your advisors and supporting you. He said the key thing for you as a leader is you don't want to be so out, so far out in front of your people that you're alone. If, you, if you're the only one way out ahead, you're not leading very well. Every should be very close to you because they're with you in what you're doing and so on. I, I get the sense from Joseph that he had a lot of key advisors around him. He was shrewd. He was, he was a forward thinker. He was a strategic planner. I mean, all of those things, it's just very clear inferences we can draw about Joseph. So, yes, thank you, Russ. That's another good quality. Of there was a, you know, another thing is that he kind of models God or Christ in, in that he displays both grace and he's tough at the same time. He's tough and holds to justice and what's right, but also displays grace. He has that, that model, that framework that yeah. you see when somebody is letting God have the wheel. Well, I think that some, the old, 
the old expositors in the 19th century or 20th century used to say Joseph is a type of Christ. So I'm going I, to just I'm, I'll go I'll go for model, you know. Yeah, I don't, um, I, don't follow, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far, but I don't follow quite the typology idea, but anyway. All right, let's crack into it's about 12:30. Let's crack into 2037. I want to get started on this because I won't see you for a couple of weeks, but it gets you excited about this so you want to come back and don't forget about the class in two weeks. I'll probably lose a lot of people because I'm going away. Joseph lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old. Now, that's an important fact. He's 17. Was, who's the youngest of Joseph's sons? Benjamin. Benjamin. We, just, we read about him in the previous chapter. So Benjamin is, a, is smaller now. Benjamin's a little boy. He's playing baseball with his friends. That's a joke. But anyway, nobody's laughing at my jokes this morning. He was a boy. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. Now, remember... Bilha and Zilpha were the two servants, Zilpha of Leah, Bilha of Rachel. And if, if we are to understand it this way, he's playing with Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. Okay? I'm going back to just what we had studied earlier. So I have no idea why he isn't playing with the sons, in other words, his other brothers, but these presumably are a bit younger. Joseph brought a bad report to them of their father. So Joseph, you got to get the picture here. Joseph is way outside of where his father lives in Beersheba. He's way, it's kind of up north. It's the time of the year where you have the sheep and the flocks in the hills. It's hot down in the, in the lower land, so you're up in the hills. And so it's a considerable distance. And Joseph is 17. They're playing baseball, and he's seeing what's happening. And he brings a, the ESV says, a bad report of them to their father. You could translate that evil. But ESV's chosen a little more of a neutral word because it, it seems as if the report is not so much about their egregious sin as it is management, the way they're taking care of the flocks. We're not sure. But he's saying, Dad, you really need to understand what the guys are doing up there. And we don't know what he told him. We don't know the content of the report. All he's doing is presumably giving an honest report to his dad. Is he a tattletale? You probably don't know what that means. When I was growing up, that's what they would call it, a tattletale. You might know it. This, he's ratting on his brothers. Do you know what that metaphor means? He's a ratter. Okay. We don't know. I mean, it all he's doing, we are assuming, is he's just giving his dad a little bit 
of a comment about his brothers, which is not a good report. But verse 3 is a very, very important verse. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. What does that remind you of? That was obviously you didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. What does that remind you of? Dad. <laughs> well, yeah, Dad. <laughs> remember, remember Isaac and G Rebecca. Remember that yeah. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. And you would think that Jacob would say, "I really like Joseph. He is a good kid." But I know what this, this is another comment on familial dysfunction. All of you, well, not all of you, some of you have children, or you've had children, or at least your brothers and sisters. If parents pay favor, you are sowing the potential seeds of problems that is just, that's a devastating thing to happen in the family. My wife is so careful about that, that if we take our kids that live here in Omaha, we're doing that tomorrow night, if we take them out to dinner, she wants to make sure that jo Jonathan and Irene either get a gift of an equivalent amount or a, an, an email, when we're there, we're gonna take you out to dinner because we just took, you see what I'm saying? That's how meticulous my wife is, because she has read this over and over and over again, the dysfunction of Jacob's family. And she says, I don't want our family to be like this. I don't want either one of our kids to say, you're playing favorites. And this is, this is a, you'd think, did he not learn anything? Because he was a son of his old age. Therefore, he made him a robe of many colors. The, the language here is very difficult. It really is. This also is the phrase that is used in 2 Samuel 13 of Tamar, who was the son of David. Excuse me, the, the daughter of David. Now, I don't know if you remember it, but Tamar will be raped by Amnon, her half-brother. And when that occurs and David doesn't, that's what causes Absalom to rebel. But that same, this same type of robe and description is used of Tamar. And it's usually translated there, a beautiful robe of colors, because she's a young teenager, really, really early adult. And so that's why ESV has chosen to translate a robe of many colors. It could be translated just a long robe with nice fluffy sleeve type of thing. But I think the case can be made, it's very, very tenuous, but this is rope, I mean, this is a beautiful rope. Now just think about that for just a minute. Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. And to show that favoritism, Jacob gives him an absolutely stunningly beautiful robe. He's doing a long robe with nice sleeves and so, or it's a robe of different colors. Either one that doesn't matter. It's a distinctive robe. Wise choice, wise decision, wise fatherly parenting skills being exhibited. I'm getting animated and emotional here. You're, I, the anticipated answer to that rhetorical question is 
No, it's stupid. It's a stupid thing for him to do. Because he's got 10 other of his boys that are going to look at that and say, Dad, why can't I get that? You give him a royal blue 911 Porsche, I want a Maserati. But when his brothers saw him in verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. Two key terms. He loved Joseph, verse 3. They hated Joseph. Key emotional active terms. Favor versus hostility. Love versus hate. They hated him and could not speak peaceably, peacefully, peaceably or peacefully to him. They would not treat him with respect. And the word ESV translates as an adverb, peacefully, is from the word shalom. And remember this. Shalom in Hebrew means everything is right. If it's shalom between you and God, everything is right. The peace of God characterizes your relationship. If it's shalom between brother and sister, two brothers, neighbors, friends, or whatever, everything is right between us. They are refusing that. So when the text uses peacefully shalom, there is no shalom between the ten and Joseph. They are not treating Joseph with respect. In the family, in terms of the boys, he's an outlier. In terms of the family, the brothers don't want anything to do with Joseph. Whose fault is that? Jacob's. This is Jacob's fault. Again, we're learning, as so many of the narratives of the Bible do, here. we're learning by negative example. Don't do this. As a parent, don't do this. Don't let this happen in your family. Because the Bible is going to be explicit here in this chapter. What happens when that now, you're not always going to have siblings throw the brother into a pit and sell him into slavery, but you have this horrible dysfunction which creates a lack of shalom in the family, which is going to create horrible things in the family. Now, um, I think we can get through this. Now, Joseph, I'm in verse 9 now. Now, Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more, and I certainly can understand that. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. This is agricultural symbolism. Do you get the point? I'm greater than you are. You guys are all going to bow down to me. Well, that certainly enhances the emotional response for them. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, Then he dreamed another dream. 
and told his brothers, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So Joseph, excuse me, the dream that Joseph dreams has celestial symbolism. Agricultural symbolism, the sheaves from the harvest bow down to his. And here, all these different celestial things bow down to Joseph. It is interesting that you have the exaltation of Joseph. Now, let's... Explore this with two questions in mind. One is agricultural symbolism, the other is celestial symbolism. Are both of these dreams communicating a truth? Yes. They're both communicating a truth. Jacob's family will bow down to Joseph. So that's a truth. The second question is a little more difficult. Was jo Joseph wise in telling the content of his two dreams? Well, if he hadn't, no. If he hadn't, his brothers wouldn't have got upset and thrown him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And Fred, Fred has just answered the question the right way. God providentially is going to use this. It's part of that, you guys meant it for evil, God meant it for good. This is the providential hand of God. God communicated this truth to Joseph through these dreams, and now Joseph just naturally, hey, brothers, I had to, I want to share this with you. He doesn't share it on a psychiatrist's couch, and Sigmund Freud is listening to the dream. You know, he wrote that, The Interpretation of Dreams, which is a major psychoanalytical foundational book. I'm being funny there. Don't forget it. But he tells it. It's truth. And it explains why the brothers react the way the brothers react. And it's all under the providential hand of God. So, the other thing to observe is his it's the end of verse 11. His father kept the saying in his mind. What saying? He's going to bow down, including his father, because the second dream says that his father and mother, as well as the brothers. And I just think the text is telling us Jacob kept thinking about this, kept thinking about this, kept thinking about this. Is what my boy said true? I mean, this is ridiculous. He's here. I mean, my sons are never going to bow down to him. We can keep going if it's all right with you. Now, when his brothers went to pass, I'm in verse 12. Let's get one more thing done before we break. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Now, down here's Beersheba. I'm not going to take time to go. Down here's Beersheba. Shechem's up here. It's considerable distance. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. He said, Here I am. And so he said, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers. 
And by the way, see if it, that well, ESV translates that, the Hebrew word there, shalom. See if it's shalom with your brothers. Joseph, I want you to go up there and I want you to talk to him. I want you to see if they've gotten over some of this. Are things right yet? Because remember, shalom means if it's the peace of God, I'm at peace with God. All things are settled. There's nothing between me and God. Shalom in human relationships, everything's right with my brothers, my parents, my friends, my neighbors, whatever. Um, Joseph, go up to your brothers. Go north and see if shalom. Shalom is with your brothers. Bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Again, that's a pretty good distance. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they passing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Now, Dothan is about almost 20 miles from Shechem. So he's going even farther away from his father, and it's, it's kind of sort of in a little bit of a westerly direction. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him afar, and before he came near to them, very important sentence. They conspired against him to kill him. Is this shalom? No. The resentment, the bitterness, and let's use that active emotional word that the text uses, hatred, is still there. Now, it is albeit extreme, but this is one of the consequences of parental favoritism, followed by parental favoritism Evidence by special gifts, it's going to sow bitterness among siblings. It's going to sow potential hatred among siblings. And again, it's extreme, but it even could sow thoughts of, I'm going to do something to hurt them. They're not better than me. They don't deserve that. He, or he doesn't deserve it. So it's just, it's almost unimaginable. They're plotting to kill Joseph. Now, if you want to know what happens, you've got to come back on April the 20th. Isn't that a great way to end class today? I didn't plan it that way, but God providentially ordered things that way. I do not claim to know what God's doing, but it's a good place to stop. This is a fantastic passage of scripture because again, and it's what Fred said earlier, what you're seeing here is the providential hand of God superintending all of this. This is horrible. Joseph will say after Jacob dies and the brothers say, now he's going to get revenge. This is in chapter 50. And Joseph will gather them together. You guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's an important thing for all of us to remember. What looks like evil, I shouldn't put it, what looks like, what is evil, God 
can transform it into something that's good. What's the greatest example of that? The cross. Monstrous evil, eternal good. Thank you very much.